Dave Wurtson, our Bible teacher, begins our study today doing something you've never heard a preacher do. He takes out his income tax form and uses it to tell us what is important in the Wurtson family. Dave confesses in his introduction that he has not taught his own congregation in Midlothian enough about God's claim upon their wallets and purses. He doesn't manipulate them with guilt, but he speaks powerfully with conviction about the need to counter the spirit of materialism by honoring God with our money. God powerfully used this message in Dave's home church. Maybe God has something vital to teach you about your money priorities. We're going to be talking today about uh, a really difficult subject. In fact, I've got a challenge for you. What I'd like you to do, I'd like some of you to go out and pull out a very sacred document. I want you to pull out uh, your income tax or your financial report from last year. And what I'd like you to do, I'd like you to pull that out, and I'd like you to begin to analyze, analyze what's on that report. You're going to find something really amazing as you begin to go through that. In other words, this is my report from last year. As I look over this report, I can begin to say, what's really important to Dave and to Mary Wurtz? As I look through here, I can see that um, health care is very important to Dave and Mary Wurtz. As I look at the expenses that we put out, our physical health and the health of our children was very important. I can look down here a little bit more and I can see that um, books are really important to a, per, a particular person in our family. And there's been some major expenditures along those lines. I can also look a little bit further and I can see that food is really important to this family. And uh, going out to, and eating as well as the meals that Mary prepares at home, it's kind of all right here. Um, I can also see that Midlothian Bible Church is important to our family. Because I can see that there was a large investment from our Wurtson family in Midlothian Bible Church. I can see that some missionaries are important to the Wurtsons. What I want you to realize is that I can pray beautiful prayers and I can teach you beautiful lessons. But you know, the truth of the matter is that this sheet right here, more objectively than anything else, lays out before me what's important to our family and what's important to me. You know, the same thing is true in your life. And in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus talked to us about being delivered from the spirit of Antichrist. As he talked about being delivered from the spirit of Antichrist, he countered it with the spirit of the worship of the true Christ. As he begins to move towards the close of the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord Jesus begins to focus on the way that we use our money. And we look at the contrast was made in verse 24, where Jesus came out and said, you cannot serve God and money. You cannot serve God and money. You're either going to worship the true God or you're going to worship money. The two are mutually exclusive. And we stress to you that Jesus wasn't saying that money was evil in itself. He wasn't saying that it was wrong for us to work jobs. He wasn't saying that all of us needed to take vows of poverty. But what he did say to us is that we need to worship him. We need to get down on our knees before him. We need to adore him and not worship our money. And what we look at in Matthew 6, if you go back to verses 19 through 21, the Lord Jesus comes out with a very important insight into our human nature. It says this in verse 19. You know the verses, and you've probably read them many times. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, 
and where thieves break in and steal. He's not telling us that we shouldn't save. He's not saying that we shouldn't have insurance policies. But what he's saying is that we shouldn't put our meaning in life. We shouldn't put our reason for getting up in the morning. We shouldn't put all the drive of our life into trying to accumulate treasures here on earth. And then he gives us a very good reason because it's going to let you down. No matter how secure you might think your investments on earth are, no matter how important you might think that, that you've got it all nailed down, that your financial accounting is all set up, it can all be gone. There can be great catastrophes that take place. There can be a sudden drop in the market. There's just all kinds of things. A thief can come in and steal a lot of the things that are precious to you, or suddenly your house can burn down. And those are things that have happened right in our congregation. Jesus says, I want you to have your treasure in a place where it's really, really secure. And he says that that place is in heaven. Look what he says in verse 20. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. And he says this, verse 21, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's the idea why I want to challenge you to look through your balance sheet for the past year. Take your checkbook and go over it. And honestly, just look at it. Look at those expenditures because where your treasure is, that's where your heart is going to be. And the one area that I can't fake you out about, the one area that I can't really fake myself out about, is the objectivity of what's written on my financial statement. Like last year, Mary and I, uh, with the help of some friends, we, we added a little addition on our house and we added a study so that when you came for counseling, you didn't feel like books were falling over on your head. Before we could get that loan from the bank, we had to come out with a very involved financial statement. And as you look at that financial statement, it's very objective. A banker looks at it and they can make judgments on whether or not they should loan you money or whether or not it's a good bet for them to be able to, to give you that money for what you want to do. It's just a mathematical thing. But what Jesus is telling us is that that financial statement also will tell a great deal, a very objective truth about where our heart is. And so as we think about countering the spirit of Antichrist, we're going to be studying about what the Bible really says about finances. What we want to do is we want to open up the pages of Scripture, and I'm going to take it for granted that you really want to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. I want to say this as we begin to talk about what the Scripture says about finances, that I'm not doing this because I want to increase the revenues of the church, although I believe that the Holy Spirit might want to do that. But I think it's very possible that some of us, when it comes to this area of, of money, are really not submitting it to the Holy Spirit. We're not submitting our pocketbook to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. The truth of the matter is we look at statistics across the evangelical community. Do you realize that the average person in those congregations gives about 25 to 3% to the Lord of their gross income? In the Old Testament, the people were under law... They gave 10%. Now, I've taught you very much throughout the years that we're not under that law and that we don't have to just have a rigid rule that we need to give this percentage. But I think in my own life, it really comes home to me that if under the old covenant, if people were moved to bring three times a year a tithe of all their agricultural prosperity and they went and celebrated before the Lord, then how much more should Mary and myself and our kids celebrate in giving to the Lord? I think one of the things I really believe is, I've, and even this week as I've been studying, 
I think that I've been amiss with you. In other words, I can look back over my messages and I think that I have taught you periodically and from time to time about money. But to be really honest with you, because I was raised in an evangelist home and my dad was a, a major player in Christian leadership, one of my dad's primary responsibilities was to, was to raise money so that Word of Life could function, so we could continue to reach out to young people. In fact, I remember as a little kid waking up in the morning, I'd hear my dad on the telephone, and my dad would be on the telephone with a businessman in Detroit that's a very dear friend of his, and he would say to this friend, he said, Paul, we've got about 60 kids that really need to get here to Word of Life, and they're not going to be able to get here because of transportation. Is there anything you can do to help, help it make it possible for these young people to come to camp? And I'd hear Paul saying, well, Jack, I'm going to see what I'm going to do. And then a few weeks later, maybe I'd have this businessman would pay for a a Greyhound bus to bring about 60 kids to Word of Life. I remember, you know, other times my daddy would say, well, man, I've got to raise $250,000 or Word of Life's not going to be able to pay their bills as we end this fiscal year. And I'd see him get on the phone and begin to talk to people. To be honest with you, as a young kid, I used to feel like, man, how degrading. How in the world, you know, my poor dad has to go and ask people for money. To be honest with you, if I had my druthers, one of the things that pulls me away from the ministry is when, when there's financial pressure. And I can feel like, man, I, this is the last thing in the world that I want to do. There's been so many different techniques into the way that, that we raise money. You know, sometimes you go and somebody harangues us and put all kinds of guilt upon us. And kind of to stay away from that, we came through the 80s where there was a lot of abuse and there were certain Christian organizations, especially in the media, that abused us as a, as a body of Christ and abused the evangelical community. And so it's easy for us as we move into the, into the next century to kind of have an attitude, you know, that money's kind of a, an evil and we don't really want to talk about it at church and it's really not something that's that important and we kind of want to keep it all secret. You know, the truth of the matter is that today as we worship together, as we sang, today as we study the Word of God, today as we pray, another thing that we should do is we should joyfully bring our contributions to the Lord. And if we're not doing that, then, then what's happening is that we're missing out on one of the most precious gifts that the Lord wants to give to us. The joy of working hard the joy of earning a living, and then being able to graciously and generously giving. What happened to a friend of mine's church, uh, Gene Getz, who was very instrumental in our own church family and getting uh, Fellowship Bible Church North going. In the 80s, they were going strong. The church family was growing. But a lot of you know what happened in Texas in the 80s. Suddenly, the economy crashed. The oil market just caved in, and that influenced some of you. It influenced the real estate market, and in Fellowship Bible Church North, there were a lot of young executives that had moved into Plano, and they were all part of the boom economically, but then they became part of the bust. What happened in that bust is suddenly this church family was plunged into some real serious financial need. Missionaries that looked like they might have to be cut off. It looked like there wouldn't be enough to be able to really carry out the building projects that were needed because of the large numbers of people that were going. That church family responded by getting really serious with what the Bible teaches about money. And what it became apparent is that that church family was giving, not sacrificially, not systematically. They were giving, kind of skimming off the top of the incredible prosperity that God had given for many years. And that church family went back and began to open up this book. 
They began to study one another. Their leaders went to a very serious study of what the Word of God teaches about finances. And what the Holy Spirit began to do is to teach them some incredible joys, some incredible praises in the area of giving. Maybe we can just whet your appetite about getting into the joy of giving. From the smallest child that's listened to me now to the oldest adult, you need to learn the joy of giving. I remember an older businessman that was in Corning, New York. He was a funeral director, and he also was a, um, had owned radio stations, kind of an interesting combination. When I was in college, I had to go down to his house, and I would live with him, and I would sell books. For example, I would take a week and sell books in the Corning area so that I could make money for school. And one of my friends, his name was L. L would say to me when I came back from work, he would say, Dave, how much did you sell today? And his very next question would be, Remember that first 10% right off the top needs to be for the Lord. Those sales are for the Lord. He wasn't a legalist. He wasn't someone that was forcing me to do anything. But as a business person, he would sit me down as a young college student and say, Dave, one of the things I've found, if I honor the Lord, if I joyously give to him, not because of rules and regulations, but because of the, the purpose of my heart towards him and the praise that I want to have towards him, then I have a great peace as I carry out the rest of my business. And even if things go wrong, I can know that my priorities are in the right place. What Jesus is saying is that finances reveals where our treasure really is. What we'd like to do as we begin the study of what the New Testament teaches about finances, is let's go back to the very beginning. There's probably no better place to begin to study finances in the body of Christ and to look at what the Jerusalem church did in the very early stages of the foundation of the church. Turn to the book of Acts. We talk about what the scripture says about finances in a church. As we turn to the book of Acts, we find out that the early church in chapter 1 is sitting there waiting for the fulfillment of the Lord's promise. If you look at Acts chapter 1, you find out that Jesus Christ ascends to heaven. And Jesus Christ assures the church family there that it's just 120 people, a very small group at the time. Jesus assures them that in just a little while that he's going to give a very special gift, the gift of the Holy Spirit. He tells them to wait. And if we look at chapter 1, we see that the believers are praying together. They're praying as they move towards the Feast of Pentecost. And they're also fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies about the need to have 12 apostles, so Mattathias is elected. As we move into Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 1 is kind of a waiting time. In Acts chapter 2, suddenly the Holy Spirit breaks forth. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, now the day of Pentecost was a Jewish feast. Three times a year the children of Israel had to go to Jerusalem. And they, they would, especially the men, would go down to Jerusalem to worship the Lord, but they would often take their families. They did that at Passover, which is when Jesus was crucified. Then 50 days later, when the first fruits of the crops came in, the first fruit of the summer crop came in at Pentecost, which would be in June, they would also go down and worship the Lord again. And then when the fall crop came in, they would bring their first fruits, and it was called the Feast of Tabernacles in the fall of the year. So this is the second of Israel's major feasts. You want to realize that there are probably thousands, thousands of Jewish people that have come from Italy, for example, from Greece, from all over what's called the diaspora, which is a scattering of God's people. 
So Jerusalem's population has swelled from, say, about maybe 60,000 to several hundred thousand. You have many people that have these guests from all over the world that are living in their home. So it's in this time of the ingathering of the Jewish people for the Feast of Pentecost that the Holy Spirit came down. Look what it says. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven. He filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each one of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues or other languages as the Spirit enabled them. Now those staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven, that's what I was just explaining to you. That's the group of the diaspora that's gathered together. When they heard the sound, they heard the sound of the wind. Evidently, throughout the city, it was like this incredible rush of wind that we as Texans could identify with very, very well. There in the upper room as people were praying, like, almost like an appearance of tongues of fire. Just as the Holy Spirit, when Jesus was baptized, came down in the form of a dove. Here we have God again, pictorially representing for his people the idea of the flaming power of his spirit. The flame in the scripture is a symbol of judgment. It's also a symbol of purification. It's a symbol of the divine presence, like the Shekinah glory. And now the Holy Spirit is anointing these individual believers. In verse 6, when the crowd heard that wind... When they heard the sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed. Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, and so forth. They each heard their own dialect, their own language. Now the Holy Spirit did this not just for communication purposes. The Holy Spirit did this because the book of Joel... The prophet Joel promised that in the last days that there would be a group of Jewish people that would be powerfully anointed by the Spirit and they would have this anointing that would reach out to other people. In fact, in just a few pages, Peter stands up to this crowd and begins to preach to them. Now, there's a lot of debate about, you know, the filling of the Holy Spirit and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I want us not to ever be afraid about the power of the Holy Spirit, the manifestation of the Spirit. This is the birth of the church. This is when the body of Christ was born. This is what initiated that new time that Jesus predicted during his earthly ministry where Jesus would not only reach out to Jewish people, but he would also reach out to Gentiles as well and would mold them together into a new family unity. What created that? What created this union in the body of Christ? What, what created that oneness of a family relationship was the gift of the Holy Spirit. God manifested himself at the very beginning of the church in a very powerful way. As we read through the rest of the New Testament, we don't, often, we don't always read about the wind. We don't always read about the fire. In fact, it's really only this foundational time where the Holy Spirit reveal, chooses to reveal himself in that specific way. But what we do find out is that the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, that by one spirit, every single one of us are baptized into the body of Christ. Romans chapter 8 tells us that if you have not the spirit, you have not Christ. And what the scripture is telling us is that the moment that you believe in Christ, the moment that you invite Christ into your heart, The Holy Spirit comes to live in you. Ephesians chapter 1 says that by one spirit we've been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Ephesians chapter 1. What I want all of you to realize as we begin to talk about finances 
There's no way that what we say from the word of God, there's no way that I can reach you if you're not controlled by the Holy Spirit. If you've invited Jesus to come into your heart, if you have come to that moment in your life when you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, you believe that Jesus rose again, that precious, precious gospel that Billy Graham never misses an opportunity to present, if you have heard that message and you've responded to it, then I want you to know that at that moment in time that you are baptized with the Holy Spirit just as certainly as the early disciples at the beginning of the church at Pentecost. Now, later on, we have another term that's used called the filling of the Holy Spirit. The filling of the Holy Spirit is something that takes place repeatedly. It can take place often in your heart. Those are special times when we're, we feel very much of the presence of the Spirit. That same intensity level of fellowship, that same emotion, emotional high, is not going to continue every single day of your life. Just like in a marriage, not every single day of your marriage is like the first night of your wedding or the days of your honeymoon. The way that a marriage relationship works is that there's great, great, exciting, passionate times. There's also times like, like when your kids have the flu or when you have the flu and things are, you know, everyone's running temperature where you don't feel emotionally high. That doesn't mean that the marriage is off. Doesn't mean that your relationship is over. It's part of living in this world. But what I do want you to know is that the book of Acts and all the New Testament makes very clear is that the baptism of the Holy Spirit takes place for all believers. The filling of the Holy Spirit is something that we need to be open to. And I want you to realize that there's no way that what I teach you about finances will reach your heart and you'll be able to understand it. And more importantly, you'll be able to apply it if you're not submitting to the control of the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians, likewise, Ephesians 5, likens the control of the Holy Spirit to drunkenness. He says, don't be drunk, don't be filled with wine, but then instead be filled with the Holy Spirit. When someone gets drunk, when someone gets really, you know, plastered with alcohol, that alcohol takes over their personality. There's a new exuberance, or if they're an angry drunk, there's a new anger. But something that's very obvious is that they're not the one that's in control. When we're filled with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is the one that begins to manifest himself. You see, I believe that that is something that where the Holy Spirit wants to renew us. He wants to come down and, and control our lives in a very special way. He, he wants to be able to explode from within us and enable us to do some things that, that we might not have ever dreamt that we would do. What makes us prepared for that? Acts chapter 1, the early church was praying. One of the things that I really learned is that it all begins with prayer. When God chooses to really show up, it's amazing what happens. And prayer, in fact, all across the country right now, we're beginning to see some of those fillings of the Holy Spirit. Some special movements where God's people are being touched in a very special way. And I believe that one of the ways the Lord really wants to touch us is in the area of finances. You say, Dave, why do you believe that? Because after Peter preached, as he began to speak to this crowd, and he presented the gospel, and we've studied Peter's sermon many times. As Peter did that, it says, as we move towards the end of chapter 2, what happened in that family. And these are verses that we come back to again and again and again. In fact, we have taken the, the basic actions of our church from Acts 2, 42 and following. Look what it says. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Second of all, they devoted themselves to fellowship. 
That word fellowship means they devoted themselves to the family unity. Look what else it says. They, they followed the Lord in fellowship and breaking of bread. They had communion together and to prayer. Look at those priorities. The teaching of the word, the fellowship of the body of Christ, and prayer. Man, every one of us would, would, would desire that. And everyone was filled with awe. And many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. We learned from Paul's writings that one of the signs of an, of an apostle that was giving new revelation, giving us the foundation of the New Testament, were the incredible miracles that they were able to do. But then look at verse 44. All the believers were together. They had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to everyone as he had need. Every day they committed that they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and are together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. This is called in some circles an early form of communism, but there's some radical differences between what happened in the early church and communism. In communism, a government, a totalitarian government, forced you to give up your material possessions, to give up private ownership. There's no private ownership under a communist system. The state owns everything. And then it's supposed to be doled out on an even basis. When in reality, what really happened in Russia is that those in power got all the good things and those out of power got nothing. So the early church was not really communism. This is totally voluntary. You need to understand some things about what was happening in this early church. What did I tell you about the, the people that were in Jerusalem? Where had they come from? All over the Roman Empire. They were there for what? They were there for the Feast of Pentecost. They would do this three times a year. But when the Pentecost took place, when the Holy Spirit came down and Peter began to apply it to the days of Joel, which was a prediction of the days of the Messiah. In Acts chapter 1, what did Jesus Christ promise the believers would happen? The angel said, this same Jesus that was taken up from you is going to do what? He's going to come back. You know what the early church felt at this stage of their development? You know what they were doing when they met together? They thought the Lord was coming any second. They thought the kingdom, I mean, they, would, they were expecting King Jesus to come back and set up his throne right there in the city of Jerusalem. And that's why nobody wanted to go home. You're having like a big, special filling of the Lord. A special impact time. Only this is an incredible one at the foundation of the church because these Jewish believers believe that any second the kingdom can be inaugurated. Now what needs to be done if all these people are away from their home? They've already been in Jerusalem, some of them, for over a month. And their bank accounts and their, expense, their vacation expense accounts is beginning to run low. What are they going to need? They're going to need the body of Christ that's in Jerusalem as they're all waiting together for the kingdom to come. They're going to need the body of Christ to reach out and help. And that's exactly what the Jerusalem church did. This was all voluntary. And what it's expressing is that when the Holy Spirit really filled this group, they had a tremendous sense of family solidarity. It's the very first thing I want you to see in the areas of finances. I ask myself, Dave, as you're here together with your brothers and sisters, when you hear about a need, when you hear about a medical need, when you hear about um, a, an individual family need, when you hear that somebody is having trouble with their plumbing, how do you respond? Do you know what the church family begins to develop? It begins to grow, and the numbers increase. It gets harder to have family solidarity. I want you to ask yourself, do you feel a little bit cold 
towards your brothers and sisters? Do you feel connected with your brothers and sisters? You see, the early church had this sense of the kingdom come. Now, we know that the Lord Jesus didn't come back in the first century, but we still need to have that sense of expectancy. Now, the New Testament is going to give us some other principles about living during this interim before Jesus comes. And the scripture is not going to teach us that we all liquidate our finances and we all go wait on a mountaintop or we all move to Jerusalem. But the abiding normative principle that's present throughout the scriptures, beginning right here in Acts chapter 2, is that in our finances, we need to have a sense of togetherness. We need to have a sense of a brother-sister relationship that moves us to share our homes. Because it's very important that anyone that relates to our church, even on a surface level, it's important for us to begin to exhibit and to express the family solidarity, the family love of the body of Christ. And brothers and sisters, what I, want to, what I want you to begin to pray about, what I want us to allow the filling of the Holy Spirit to do, is that Jesus told us, even unbelievers, even pagans, take care of people they know. What makes us different? We care for our enemies. We give to people that don't have any claim at all upon us. We give the way Christ gives to us. And what I want, I want you to begin to pray about that exciting adventure. Some of you say, well, Dave, I want to experience God's nearness. I want to experience his oneness. I want to experience his power working through my life. Then this is what you need to do. Start acting like a brother or sister towards even people. You could begin with people in the body of Christ that you don't know very well. That aren't your good friends. That haven't done anything for you. Just do it for the joy of doing it. Because the Spirit led you to do it. You know what will start to happen? We'll begin to have what the early church had, a sense of solidarity. We are participating in what the early church had, the blessing of God. Now, what happens when the body of believers starts to really care for each other financially? The early church cared for each other financially so much that we're going to find out that when they heard about needs, some of their members went out and actually sold land and brought the price of that land to the church leadership so that it could be given to meet the needs of the Jewish believers that were still remaining in Jerusalem. Can you imagine that kind of love? People that went out and sold land or sold some of their own possessions. But you know, there's an incredible joy that starts to happen when God's family begins to operate like that. And I want us to pray that the Lord will do that. The very first principle that we learn from the first century church is that a divine family solidarity caused believers to use their material goods to meet the needs of fellow believers. And this caused unbelievers to move towards Christ. You notice this passage ends in Acts 2. It ends by telling us, it ends by telling us that the Lord daily added those who were being saved. You see, that's what starts to happen when there's family solidarity in the body of Christ. Unbelievers know that finances reveal where people's hearts really are. So when they see a group of people really treating each other like brothers and sisters, really sharing their material wealth. So I want to encourage you in that. I want you to realize that that is part of the manifestation of the Holy Spirit in our midst. And as we do that, we become evangelistic. We begin to reach out to unbelievers. In Acts chapter 3... We have a moving scene. In Acts chapter 3, we have Peter and John coming to the gate beautiful. As they move into the temple, there's a beggar there. The beggar's been there for years, and and he's been longing to get healed. He has great physical needs. It says in verse 3 that they were about to to, to enter, and the beggar was asking them for money. Look at verse 4. 
Peter the apostle looked straight at him, looked straight at the beggar, and as he did, and as did John. So Peter and John are looking at this beggar. What do you think the beggar, the beggar expects? Man, if you ever catch the eye of a beggar in New York City, what does he expect? Now look what Peter says. Look at us. A man, the man's really riveted now. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Look at verse 6. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have. But what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Walk. Taking him by the right hand, he, Peter, helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. This is an incredible contrast. The apostle Peter was one of the spiritual leaders in the church of Jerusalem. And what he says is that he didn't have silver and gold. Do you realize the contrast that that was with the Jewish leaders? The Jewish leaders like Ananias and Caiaphas and Annas, all the high priests in the city of Jerusalem, they lived up in the rich section of town. They controlled the temple treasury. They controlled the exchange rate. Remember I've taught you in the past about why Jesus turned the money changers over because the whole Jewish hierarchy, the high priesthood, had this whole robbery that was going with the exchange rate. When Peter said, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. What Peter illustrated is a principle that believers, leaders, I mean, church leaders in our body of Christ and in body of Christ across the country and across the world, our spiritual leadership should not be known for their power in money. They should be known for their power in the Spirit of God. Their power to really minister the Spirit of God. Leadership can become so estranged and so distant from the everyday normal needs of people that they don't care. And the people don't think that they care. And then it all falls down. What I want you to realize at the early church, Peter was a successful businessman. Peter was a Galilean fisherman in, in, in Galilee at that time, a fishing industry where you owned your own boats and you, your brothers also owned their boats. You were not just some poor little guy. You had a very going concern. Even on the Sea of Galilee today, there are many fishing boats that go out. And if you go down by the Red Sea, Israel has a very thriving business of fishing there in the Red Sea and out into the Indian Ocean, down in that area. It's a very prosperous thing. So Peter gave that up to follow the Lord. And so he's saying, I don't have silver and gold, but I have the power of God. A second principle, first of all, this family solidarity that generated this magnetic attractiveness, but also a church leadership that's able to influence people not by money, but by the power of God. And the early church prospered because their leadership was not focused on silver and gold. They were focused on Jesus. I share with you about our finances. I just, you know, from the bottom of my heart as I speak to you, I want you to know that Mary and I do give more than 10%. And you say, well, Dave, why do you tell us that? Because in the book of Acts, we're going to find out in the very next chapter that Barnabas, the son of encouragement, went out and sold land. He went out and sold land and brought the money to the apostles and the money was given. But I want you to know that it says that the early church, when Barnabas, this businessman, went out and sold that land and brought it to the, the church leadership and it was distributed to people in need, It says that the entire church was encouraged by Barnabas' example. Think about this. We have taken a verse in Matthew that says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And we've taken that and we have made giving totally confidential. And one of the things that we've done, what we've done is we've forgotten, you know, right in the very next verses, Jesus says that when you pray, you should do it in a closet. 
that you should go into your secret place? Now, does that mean because Jesus taught us that we should pray in the closet, that when we pray that it was wrong to pray in public? No, you know that it's not. I just read to you how the early church prayed. You see, Jesus wasn't saying that when we pray, we always had to do it privately. He also wasn't saying that when we give, we only need to give privately. Otherwise, we would have to pray privately. What Jesus was warning against is a religious person that was giving just for show. And the great temptation for someone that's wealthy or even someone that wants to give the pretense that they're wealthy is to do it so openly that it brings great acclaim to them. And Jesus was warning against that. But you know what? In the first century church, Barnabas was known for what he did. And it brought great encouragement. His example brought great encouragement to the rest of the body of Christ because they were able to rejoice in what God did. You see, I'd be, if I get before you and I teach you about giving and when I go through my objective, you know, what Mary and I really do in giving, it comes out that we just don't give the Midlothian Bible Church at all and we just say, well, man, we're giving our lives to the church. If it's not reflected in our checkbook, then forget it. See, that's what I'm saying. That's where the rubber meets the road. God is saying, David, I want you to be honest about your finances. I want your financial accounting to really show what's happening. And leadership needs to be an example in giving. Barnabas brought great encouragement to to the body of Christ because he responded to the Holy Spirit and he graciously went out and took his land, sold it, and brought it so that the needs within the church family could be met. You know, I believe the Holy Spirit in the coming months wants to enable us to meet needs right here among us. Some of you to be able to give sacrificially to meet the needs of someone else. I think we've just begun to see the outreach into the world, into this area, people's lives. I think the Spirit of God wants to come upon you, and money's going to be part of it. But so is prayer, so is praise, so is worship. And man, I think we're at one of the, kind of at a threshold of a powerful pouring out of the Spirit of God. And I think it's it's going to affect me right here where Jesus sat, in my treasury, where my heart is. And that's going to be one of the areas that he touches. So as you go home today, I want you to to take that checkbook and take out your ledger and just honestly look at it and say, God, this is yours. I'm going to take this whole ledger book, all of my input, all the money that I get. It totally belongs to you. And I want you to bless. And I'm going to graciously be obedient to you. And I'm going to start giving on a regular basis. Brothers and sisters, that is when we're going to be able to do some things and meet some needs and pay the bills that need to be paid, but do far more than that. The truth of the matter is right now that I believe the Holy Spirit wants to move us. I think he wants to get his family to 100% of his people graciously giving so that they can have that joy of having God blessing them in that material area. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the power of the Holy Spirit. We thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit that enabled the early apostles to speak in languages that they never studied. We thank you, Lord, for the power of the Holy Spirit that enabled an evangelist like Billy Graham to be able to present the gospel and and people respond. But, Lord, we thank you that your Spirit helps us in business, helps us to make money for your glory, that we, when we leave here, when we walk out into the business world, are not walking away from you, But we can be confident that you'll guide us in decisions, that that you'll guide us in our budgeting. And Lord, as we go through the New Testament and try to put things together from a financial standpoint, 
I'd ask you, Lord, as we talk not just about giving to the church, but as we talk about just the priorities that we have in our own personal finance, I'd ask you, Lord, that, that your spirit would help us to be obedient. Lord, help us in the area of credit. It's an area that you've really convicted Mary and myself about. And those credit cards can mount bills up that put us under stress and strength. And I know some of my brothers and sisters really join us in that, that threat and that pressure from, from an over too much debt. And I would ask you, Lord, as we study your word in a very honest way, in an open way, staying away from the extremes, but learning what your scripture really does teach us about debt. I pray, Lord, that your spirit would just set my brothers and sisters free from worry, from threats, from the evil one, and give us an incredible joy, freedom from worry, freedom from stress. Lord, help us in our use of finances this week to demonstrate a family solidarity towards one another, to demonstrate a magnetic attractiveness to the body of Christ because unbelievers see the incredible family love that's displayed in the way we use our money for one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.